Independent Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont has become one of the most influential figures in American politics over his 30-plus years in Congress. He's built a following of millions on social media and attracted tens of thousands of supporters to his presidential campaign speeches. And he's the longest-serving independent in Congress. While the senator has established himself as a progressive leader opposed to war and advancing civil rights, one key theme has driven his political career. The wealthiest 1% of our population has seen a 122% increase in their real income. We are taking on the corporate establishment and a government which works for all of us, not just the 1%. Senator Sanders is out with a new book all about this passion. It's called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And the topic is already striking a chord with many of you. Hi, my name is Christian Bartolo. I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I think he brings up a great point with just the title. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. Climate change, the economy being the way it is right now, inflation, people not being able to afford health care bills today, is all a direct result of capitalism. Christian, thanks for that message. After the break, Senator Sanders joins us to talk about his book, Social Security, Medicare, and what his political future might hold. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation. Senator Sanders, thanks for joining us. I know we were hoping to have you in studio, but I know you're at the Capitol for Senate business today, but we appreciate you making time. Thank you very much for having me. Well, fighting for workers' rights and economic equality has been a cornerstone issue throughout your career, and you've continued this fight as the chair of the Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. You plan to hold a vote tomorrow to open an investigation into Starbucks. A federal administrative judge found the company committed, quote, egregious and widespread violations of labor law. How do you plan to hold CEO Howard Schultz accountable? Well, here is the issue. The issue is that all over this country, workers are more than any time in recent history wanting to join unions because they're finding themselves in economic uh, trouble. They need better wages, better working conditions, better schedules, etc., etc. In terms of Starbucks, over 200 shops, coffee shops, have voted to form a union And it is very clear to me and the NLRB, who has cited them over 80 times for violating federal labor law, that what they are doing is trying to bust the union organizing effort. That is illegal. That is not acceptable. So we're going to bring uh, Mr. Schultz before the committee, and we will ask him why he thinks, just because he's a billionaire, just because he's head of a large multinational corporation, that he can violate federal law with impunity. Well, several members of our tax club asked about unions. A listener from D.C. messaged in, what changes are needed to U.S. labor laws to enable the labor movement to grow and have collective bargaining power? Well, that's a great question. And and let me say that one of the reasons why we have seen a decline in the middle class over the last many decades and an increase in income and wealth inequality has everything to do with the decline of the trade union movement. A lot of reasons for that. Uh, We've had disastrous trade policies, uh, which have enabled corporations to shut down factories all across this country and move to cheap labor abroad. But also, there has been a consistent attack on the rights of workers, as we're seeing in Starbucks, Amazon, Apple, and elsewhere right now, uh, to exercise their legal rights uh, and organize uh, a union. Uh, So one of the things that we, I would like to see, and and exist in many other countries, is if 50% of the workers 
uh, in a uh, in an agency, plus one sign a union card, they have a union. Number two, uh, when workers vote for a union right now, uh, as is again as the case of Starbucks, the company does not sit down and negotiate seriously. So they stall, they stall, they stall. Uh, and what uh, serious legislation like the PRO Act that uh, we're going to try to get passed does is say, you know what, you've got to sit down and negotiate a contract in a reasonable period of time uh, or else there will be severe penalties. Uh, third, uh, thirdly, uh, there cannot be these forced compulsory uh, meetings where workers have to come into a room and, and are kind of assaulted with anti-union uh, propaganda. And fourth, of course, uh, workers cannot be fired uh, because they're trying to organize a union. Those are some of the uh, protections that workers need. There are many more, but those are some. Now, Senator, you mentioned the PRO Act. Can you tell us more about that and, and who's involved in pushing for that legislation? Well, I think there's virtually unanimous support in the Democratic caucus on the PRO Act. Uh, and uh, I will be introducing that bill. It's coming out of our committee. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, what it says is that workers in this country have a constitutional right uh, to form a union. Right now, we are seeing the corporate world uh, using their uh, lawyers and their consultants and acting uh, very often in an illegal way. And we just simply want to make the point that if workers want to form a union, they have the right to do so. Is there any bipartisan support for the PRO Act? Uh, maybe, but not that I'm aware of. You were raised by Jewish parents in Brooklyn, New York, in a rent-controlled apartment. Uh, your dad moved from Poland to the U.S. as a teenager, and, and you're outspoken about the challenges your family faced financially. What effect did that upbringing have on your politics and, and focus on economic inequality? Well, it had a very significant impact. Uh, as you indicated, I grew up in a lower-income family in Brooklyn. We lived in a rent-controlled apartment. And uh, from my earliest days, and uh, I can recall the tension and the arguments between my parents over money, 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 money. Uh, and the older I got, the more I saw, you know, a world where my family certainly was not alone, that that's where most families are at. So that the idea that right now in America, and this is what the book is about, uh, we have over 60%. I mean, it's really quite remarkable when you step back and you think about it. This is the richest country in the history of the world with an exploding technology. And yet, despite all that, well over 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and that means and that's how my family lived. And, and that means that if your car breaks down, if you have an unexpected uh, medical bill, uh, if your landlord raises your rent, you know what? You're in deep trouble. You're in financial distress. And that shouldn't be the case. We should not be living in a society, and this is what I learned as a kid, where you got three people on top, three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society, where the wealthiest people are becoming much, much richer, uh, while we have uh, half a million people who are homeless in America. So, you know, what I learned as a kid is that uh, we need to stand together, all of us, whether we're black or white or Latino, Native American, Asian American, gay, straight, whatever we are, and fight for an agenda uh, that works for all of us in an economy that works for all of us. This is not utopian stuff. Can we make health care a human right? Can we end the absurd health care system we have right now, which costs us twice as much per capita as any other country, while 85 million people are uninsured or uninsured? Of course we can. But, you know, I, you know, what I learned as a kid 
is that a lot of families are struggling and we can do a lot better as a society. Uh, Senator Sanders, you're the new chairman of the HELP Committee. The Inflation Reduction Act passed last year. It will allow Medicare administrators to negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry to lower drug prices. But to our listeners' questions, what steps are you taking in your new position to address these high health care costs and help better regulate our insurance industry? Well, to begin with, we should be very clear. We have, a, Jen, a whole chapter in the book in some detail about health care. The function of the current healthcare system is not underlined to provide quality care to all Americans in a cost-effective way. That's the function of any rational healthcare system. The function of the healthcare system of today is to make as much money as possible for the insurance industry and to provide huge compensation packages for the CEOs and higher-level people in the industry. And they're doing that very well. So the industry is doing exactly what it is supposed to be doing right now, making huge money for the people who own it. But 85 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured. What is the solution? The solution is pretty obviously. I live 50 miles away from the Canadian border. In Canada, if you end up in the hospital after a serious operation for three weeks or a month, you leave that hospital without paying a nickel. You go to any doctor you want, you don't have to take out your wallet. They cover all of their people, and they do it for 50% per capita of what we spend. So the goal is to have a health care system, I believe, in a Medicare for all single-payer system. I'm going to introduce that legislation uh, within a couple of months, and it will have a reasonable number of co-sponsors. But what we should be very clear about, and it's the same thing for the pharmaceutical industry, is these guys are incredibly powerful. The insurance industry... The drug companies spend huge amounts of money on campaign contributions, on lobbying, on advertising of all kinds. So that's where we need to go. I don't have the votes to do that right now. There'll be no Republican who supports it. Half the Democrats don't support it. So at least what I'm trying to do is a couple of things. Number one, we're taking aim at the greed of the pharmaceutical industry right now to substantially lower prescription drug prices. I think we've had some luck We're having some luck. Eli Lilly has recently announced they're going to substantially lower uh, their costs, uh, their price for insulin. That is not an accident. Trust me. Uh, Moderna has recently announced that they are going to provide uh, free vaccines rather than quadrupling the price to uninsured people. That's not an accident. But we got to do more. We should not be paying uh, any prices for drugs higher than any other country on earth. The other thing that I want to do is to... Uh, at least, if I can't, we can't move to guarantee health care to all people as a right, we can expand primary health care through the significant growth of community health centers all over this country. Worked hard on that last few years. We've had some progress. I want to at least make sure that everybody in this country, regardless of income, can walk into a doctor's office, get the primary health care, dental care, a mental health uh, counseling. Mental health is a huge issue right now. And low-cost prescription drugs is what uh, community health centers provide. How far would that go to addressing the crisis we're seeing in rural communities right now? We were in Fresno last week where a rural hospital closed recently. It was a nonprofit hospital. According to the American Hospital Association, there were 136 rural hospitals closed in the U.S. between 2010 and 2021. Uh, 600 more are currently at risk, uh, according to the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. So would those community health centers go to address that crisis as well? Well, they would to some degree. I mean, they are very effective and cost-effective in providing 
uh, quality primary health care, where as bad as our overall health care system is, we're even worse in primary health care. Uh, and what I think every sensible person understands is that you save money by investing in primary health care because if people don't get to a doctor when they should, they're only going to get sicker. They're going to end up in the emergency room. They're going to end up in the hospital, cost the system more money. But no, I don't think a community health center is going to replace a hospital. And that's another issue that has to be uh, looked at. But here is the bottom line. The bottom line to me when we talk about health care is that the system is dysfunctional, it is totally broken, and we've got to move in the direction of every other major country on earth. A, healthcare is a human right, guarantee it to all people, get private insurance companies out of it. Their goal is only to make money and to make the system as complicated uh, and non-transparent as possible. You said right now you don't have the political support to move this agenda forward. What do you think it would take? A political revolution in this country. I mean, that takes you to another thing that is, you know, we deal with in the book. Again, we, what this book tries to do, Jen, is to kind of be honest with the American people and raise the issues that, you know, a lot of folks in Congress or the media don't raise. And that is, we have a corrupt political system. I'm sure that doesn't shock anybody who's listening. What does that mean? It means especially since Citizens United, billionaires are able to put as much money as they want into super PACs and elect or defeat candidates that they like or dislike. And that's what you end up with. You end up with a Congress which is way out of touch with the needs uh, of the uh, American people. So it's not only that we don't have a rational uh, health care system. It's not just that we are paying the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. It's not just that our child care system is a total disaster. It's not just that you know, 45 million people are dealing with student debt or that we haven't been aggressive enough on, on climate change. Uh, it, 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 what you have now is a system that is working just great for the 1%. That's, that's what this book is about. Uh, it's working well for corporations who, you know, enjoying record-breaking profits. Unfortunately, it is not working well for the vast majority of the American people. So before we're going to make any real change in America, in my view, you need to have major, major campaign finance reform, move to public funding of elections, and make it clear that in a, in a real democracy, billionaires can't buy elections. That leads us to this question we got on Twitter from I Hate Adulting. They say, how do we address the messaging problems that Democrats have when explaining, quote, socialist programs we already have, like Social Security, food stamps, Medicare? I think the big problem is the messaging to the regular people. Senator, your thoughts? I think, if my memory is correct, I think Harry Truman, way back when, made that point. Anytime the ruling class opposes uh, an idea, they, they throw out uh, fear-mongering. Uh, and try to confuse what we're trying to do with the Soviet Union or North Korea or other authoritarian-type societies. Uh, but you're quite right. When you walk into the public library today, it's a government-run uh, operation. Uh, when you call up the police, the fire department, those are government-run operations. Now, does the government run particularly efficiently? No, it does not. We've got to do a lot better job in making it more cost-effective and efficient, and I think we can do that. Uh, but that's what democracy is about, people participating in their government and making it as cost-effective and efficient uh, as, it, uh, as it possibly uh, can be. 
You make the case, again, that billionaires simply shouldn't exist in this country. Quoting from page 87 of your, or 97, rather, of your book, you say, quote, the very existence of a rapidly expanding billionaire class in the United States is a manifestation of an unjust system that promotes massive income and wealth inequality. However, you say in that same chapter, quote, this isn't about creating a rigid system that discourages creativity and innovation. There's nothing wrong with a business or an entrepreneur making a profit, end quote. So to your mind, what does a globalized system of capitalism look like without a billionaire class? Well, well, this is what it means. And again, it raises a rather profound question that we don't discuss enough. And that is, how much is enough? Jen, you go out, you work hard, your family, you start a business, you come up with a good product, a good service, people want it, and you're successful, and you make money. Great. Good. Who objects to that? I don't. But how much is enough? Do you really need to put away $5 billion, $10 billion, $20 billion, $50 billion? I mean, enough really is enough. So I think we need a tax system, and not a radical idea. I think, under my memory is correct, under Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 50s, we had a tax system that taxed the very, very rich very heavily, and that's what I think we should do. And the, the other part of that, and we go into this at some length, is we are having, developing a culture of greed where multi-billionaires are worshipped. And young people say, oh my God, what life is about, I want to be Elon Musk and have $100 billion. Well, what about, what about educating our kids to say, my God, I'd love to be a teacher because a teacher does such really important work. And I want to be a scientist. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. I don't want to do my job as a bus driver really, really well. And we need great carpenters and sheet metal workers. I don't want to be proud. I earn a good living and do it honestly. So I think we have a culture that is based on extreme greed. And that's what we're saying. We're not, I'm not uh, somebody who wants to discourage innovation of people making money. But enough is enough. You know, you make, you, you know, you have three, four hundred million dollars in the bank. I think you're going to live pretty comfortably. You'll probably be able to pay your electric bill. Uh, how much money do you need? How many, etc. You know, you got these billionaires right now who live in another universe. Uh, they own homes, they own islands, they own their own jet planes, they're off to outer space with their spaceships, and they kind of don't know what's going on in the real world. So I do not think that billionaires should exist. Let's talk about taxation, Senator. President Biden announced last week his plans for new taxes on America's wealthiest earners. I want to make it clear, I'm going to raise some taxes. Many of you are billionaires out there, you're going to stop paying at 3%. Not a joke. The idea that a billionaire, we used to have 600 or so in the United States of America, now there's 1,000. The idea that they pay at a rate that is lower than the rate of a police officer, a school teacher, a nurse, is bizarre. On March the 9th, I'm going to lay down in detail every single thing, every tax that's out there that I'm proposing, and no one over 400, making less than $400,000 is going to pay a penny more than taxes. That's President Biden speaking in Virginia Beach. The administration will detail their full budget proposal on Thursday from Philadelphia. Senator, what conversations have you had with the president about this plan? Well, we chat about it. Uh, you know, I drop in every once in a while. And look, I think the president is coming from the right place. And I think most people agree with him. Does it really make sense that we have major profitable corporations who in some cases don't pay a nickel in federal income tax. Anyone think that makes sense? No. 
Uh, does it really make sense? And this is what the president was talking about, is that the effective tax rate for billionaires is lower than it is for working class people. Does that make sense to anybody? No. So I think we need a major overhaul, whether the president will go as far as I think he should, probably not. But I think he's moving in the right direction. And we need a major overhaul, which says to the billionaire class and the very rich, you know what? In a democratic, civilized society, you're going to have to pay your fair share of taxes. We're going to have to deal with the whole issue of tax havens that exist uh, all over the world, Cayman Islands and elsewhere, where these rich people just drop their money to avoid uh, taxation. But we really need a thorough discussion and reform of a very regressive uh, tax system. Well, getting back to the makeup of Congress, you have a Republican-controlled House. There's a sharply divided Senate with Democrat Joe Manchin and independent Kirsten Sinema having previously opposed the Biden administration's plans to raise taxes. Do you think it's possible for tax reform to be achieved under the current makeup of Congress? Uh, well, I'll tell you what I think, and, and I don't know the answer, Jen. I don't know that anybody can definitively give you that answer at this point. But I think if you do what the president is beginning to do and make the case to the American people, do you really think, whether you're in a red state or a blue state, that you, a working class person, should be paying a higher effective tax rate than some billionaire? If we can rally the American people, around an understanding of how regressive the tax system is. Yeah, and they can put pressure on their elected officials. Yes, I think we can make some uh, significant uh, changes. Yesterday on the show, we talked about the sharp increase in child labor violations since 2015. This follows this investigation from the New York Times. One of our guests explained why more children are working unsafe and illegal jobs. One big reason in the last couple of years is because of the labor shortage. Employers, instead of improving working conditions to attract workers, are turning to a vulnerable and exploitable workforce. That's Terry Gerstein from Harvard Law School Center for Labor and a Just Economy. And the New York Times reports more than 130,000 children into the U.S. last year alone, about half from Guatemala. And they found many of these kids, about two-thirds, are working full-time jobs in violation of child labor laws. How will the Senate provide more oversight on who is working in the U.S. and how they're treated? Well, Terry's point is exactly right. This is absolutely outrageous. Uh, the Labor Department needs to do the investigations that are necessary and start fining these companies big time for violating federal labor law. But that issue gets back to a, another issue that Terry raised in her comments, and that is you need to raise wages. Real wages today, real weekly wages Inflation accounted for wages for the average American worker is unbelievably lower than it was 50 years ago. Workers are falling behind the rate of inflation in terms of their wage increases. So the demand has got to be that real wages have got to be raised substantially in America. One of the issues we're going to be looking at is raising the minimum wage in this country, which has not been raised in a very long time, now currently unbelievably at $7.25 an hour, uh, to a living wage. Uh, so those are a couple of the things that have to be done. And, and what do you think that living wage would be? I personally would put it, and you know, some would go higher, but it's $17 an hour. Coming up, we talk to the senator about his presidential run in 2020 and discuss what his political future might hold. And we keep asking your questions, too. We'll be back with more in a moment. Let's get back 
to the conversation with this email from Will Brown, who says, what, if anything, gives you confidence in our institutions to maintain democracy? Uh, well, I got to tell Will I'm not all that confident. Mm. Uh, and that's why we're working as hard as we can. But this is what I would say to Will. Uh, I believe you cannot look at the threat to American democracy in an abstract way without understanding the failures of government to respond to the needs of tens of millions of working people. So the way I look at it is that if you're out there in rural America or any place for that matter, you are working, maybe you had a good job, that job went to China, it went to Mexico, and you're working for, you know, at at a dead-end job, not going anywhere. You can't afford health care. Your kid can't afford to go to college. Uh, You're facing maybe uh, higher rents in in, in your house. Child care system, your community is a disaster. And then somebody gets on television and says, vote for me. Hey, I'm going to solve all your problems. Do you believe him? You don't believe him. Again, what you're seeing in America, and everybody knows this, rich are getting much richer. CEOs make 400 times more than their workers do. Workers are falling behind. People don't believe them anymore. And if people lose faith in democracy, because democracy is not responding to their needs, that's what Trumpism is all about. So yes, we got to do everything we can to maintain democratic institutions. I was in the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I know what happened. But at the end of the day, if we're going to revitalize American democracy, we got to make government work for all people. You pass, in my view, a Medicare for all single payer system, which says to every person in this country, you know what? Healthcare is a human right. You go to the doctor when you want. When you come out of the hospital, don't worry about going medically, uh, don't worry about going bankrupt because of medical related bills. You're an American citizen. You have health care as a right. Your kid is going to be able to get a college education because your child lives in America and we believe in education. You're going to have a first-class child care system in America because we understand how important it is that we allow our kids, enable our kids to get off to a good start. We're going to have strong public schools. All right, if you do those things, people say, you know what? Hey, that's pretty good to be in a democracy. Democracy works for me. But right now, because of a corrupt political system, because of concentration of ownership in sector after sector, because of the income and wealth inequality that we have, the current system is working very, very well for Senator, the people on top. I'm curious to know if you see this as purely or mostly an economic issue, or are there other factors at play? I think about the rise of Christian nationalism among certain parts of the GOP, um, a rise in hate crimes across the country. It, is it just economics, or do you think something else is happening as well? It is not. But nothing is unrelated uh, to anything else. But look, I am not going to deny for one second that a part of Trump's support, for example, is racist for whatever reason, is sexist for whatever reason, is homophobic for whatever reason, is certainly xenophobic for whatever reason, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's true. But what I would also argue that there are many folks out there who are today Trump supporters who've actually voted for Barack Obama and maybe voted for his re-election. So I think what we have got to do is, you know, obviously deal with systemic racism and deal with all of the bigotry that exists in this country. That we've got to do. But we also have to understand, you know, and I, I did a hearing, Jen, a couple of years ago uh, with a bunch of doctors, and they talked about diseases of despair. Are you familiar with that term? I'm not. 
All right, what diseases of despair is defined by these doctors are is that even before COVID, our life expectancy in many parts of this country was actually in decline, going down. People were turning to drugs, they were turning to alcohol, even to suicide, because their lives were hopeless. That was the fact. And that is maybe more of a concern right now. Our life expectancy is way beyond, way below many other countries. So in my view, in my view, if we're going to revitalize American democracy, we've got to make sure that government works for all of us. And what, you know, I, I'm trying to work on every single day is to make sure the government doesn't work for the lobbyists. Right now, you know why we're paying the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs? Among other reasons, there are 1,700 well-paid lobbyists here in Washington, D.C., trying to make sure that we can't regulate drug prices in America. We got to break through that and create a government that works for all. I, I really would love for you to connect the dots here because I hear this argument so often that if people feel more economically secure, white people specifically, then some of these other issues will resolve themselves. And, and what I can tell you is that there have been low-income, poor people who are not white in this country for a very long time, and. We, we don't see the same dynamics in place. Some of it has to do with, with the structural issues in our country and who's empowered and who's not. But I guess I always sort of struggle with this idea that just having a, a government and an economic system that works for everyone will fix some of these other issues because some of these systems have always worked at least better for some people than they have for others. Look, I'm not suggesting that economic justice is going to solve all of the bigotry in America. I'm not suggesting that at all. But at the end of the day, what demagoguery is about from Hitler and before Hitler is this. People are angry. People are upset. People are frustrated. And you got a demagogue coming along and say, I know why you're angry. It's because of the immigrants. I know why you're angry. It's because the black folks are taking your jobs. I know why you're angry. It's the Jews. It's the gays. You pick your group, the gypsies, you know, depending on what part of the world. So what demagogues do is they take a group, a minority group of people, and they say, that's who you should hate. That's the cause of your problem. And all I'm saying is that if we can, and what we are trying to do with some success, not as much as I would like, but some success, if we can create a political movement in this country which brings our people together, primarily working people who have been so long ignored, in my view, by government, and that is black and white and Latino and Native American and Asian American and gay, straight, you know, just the vast majority of people saying, you know what, health care is a human right. Let's do it. I want all kids in this country to be able to get a higher education without going into debt. I want to make sure that we're putting young people to work transforming our energy system so we can lead the world in fighting climate change. I think if you do those things, you'll take a significant bite out of the bigotry uh, that we currently have. Not going to solve it all. It will take a bite out of it. Well, let's go back to our listeners. Here's another question we got. This is a question for Bernie Sanders. My name is Al from Charlotte, North Carolina. And economic inequality began with slavery in America that created capitalism. Shouldn't your fight begin with reparations for American descendants of slavery who have a 400-year accrued disadvantage when compared to everyone else? 
Thanks, Al. We also got this message from Wilbur on Twitter, who says the exploitation of slaves and descendants of chattel slavery built capitalism in America. Will you support reparations? Now, Senator Sanders, the the California Reparations Task Force met this past weekend uh, to discuss who should be eligible for compensation for the harm caused by slavery. Their final report is due July 1st. Your colleague in the Senate, New Jersey Democrat Cory Booker, reintroduced legislation in Congress to form a commission and study reparation proposals. In an interview during the 2020 presidential campaign, you said, quote, I think that right now our job is to address the crises facing the American people and our communities. And I think there are better ways to do that than just writing a check. Now, many reparations proponents would say it's not about just writing a check. It's a more complex set of corrections to account for the unpaid labor that built this country and its wealth. But where do you stand on the issue of reparations today? Well, where I stand is right now in everything that I've talked about to you right now whether it is health care for all, whether it is making, substantially improving public education and child care and making housing affordable, will disproportionately, disproportionately impact uh, people of color. Um, uh, I am not unsympathetic and and support uh, Senator Booker's idea to form a commission to see where we go. But right now, we have uh, enormous economic crises facing Uh, the African-American community, the Latino community, and the work that I'm doing is going to disproportionately benefit uh, those communities. So, but that would, it would affect them moving forward. But from our listeners' perspective, what do you do about the hundreds of years preceding that to try to correct some of the imbalances affecting the African-American community right now? Well, I think, as I said, I would support Senator Booker's commission to take a look at that issue. We're talking to Senator Bernie Sanders. He's the author of the new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Let's go back to our voicemail box. What do we do about Medicare and Social Security? I get real nervous when the Republicans start banging this drum because fewer companies are offering pensions and most of us are not savvy enough to invest our money on our own. Jody from North Carolina, thanks for that message. And another member of our tax club writes, what's going to happen to Social Security if absolutely nothing changes? Do baby boomers think there's enough for them so they don't have to worry about the next generation? Senator, what are your thoughts on Social Security and and whether we're prepared to take care of the the next generation that needs to retire? Uh, We have introduced legislation that deals with Social Security. I think Jody is quite right. Uh, to be nervous that you got Republicans out there uh, who have talked about cutting uh, Social Security or raising the retirement age, cutting Medicare. Uh, and at a time when so many people are struggling, that is exactly the wrong thing to do. Uh, right now, the financial crisis uh, of Social Security is that we have a Social Security tax system which says that if person A makes $10 million a year, and person B makes $160,000 a year, both of them put in exactly the same amount of money uh, into the Social Security Trust Fund. And that is because we have a cap on taxable income, which is now at $160,000. The legislation that I have introduced, which has, I believe, 10 co-sponsors, lifts the cap, lifts the cap, does away with that, and says that person who makes $10 million is going to have to pay Tax social security taxes on all of their income. If you do that, Jen, social security will be solvent 
for the next 75 years. That's for our kids and our grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And, and we will be able to uh, significantly raise Social Security benefits because there are a lot of older people out there who are struggling. Um, and you're talking about the, the Social solution. Security Expansion Act, correct? Right. That's right. And does it have bipartisan support, Senator? No, of course not. The Republicans are not going to support raising taxes on the rich. That's not what they do. Uh, but we're gaining support, and I think uh, poll after poll shows that that is what the American people uh, would like us to so, And I should point out that if we do that, 93% of the American people will not pay a nickel more uh, in taxes. So the, the answer here is it gets back again to kind of everything that I've been talking about and what this book is about. If you want a government that works for all and you want to make sure right now, this is really quite amazing, about half of older workers have nothing in the bank as they face retirement. Think about that. You're 58 years of age, you're going to you know, be retired in maybe seven years, you've got nothing in the bank. And they're worried, then you're hearing you know, people talking about cutting Social Security. So what we have got to do is say, hey, Social Security is a bedrock of this country. We're going to expand benefits, because we know many seniors are hurting, and we're going to extend its solvency by finally demanding upper-income people starting to pay their fair share of taxes, in this case, into the Social Security Trust Fund. Senator, I know we've only got a few seconds left from you, but we're getting lots of questions about your political future. Do you plan to run for president again? Well, I, what I have said publicly is that President Biden uh, announces that he's going to be running for re-election. Uh, I will support him. So is that a no, never in the future? Well, right now, uh, it, you know, as I said, if President Biden runs for re-election, as I think he will, I'll be supporting him. All right. That's Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. His new book is called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Senator, thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.